This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. In today's show, we're going to talk about if you've got something going on with your brain, epilepsy, brain tumor, or some other disorder. There's some new technology out. It's very innovative, and we want to discuss that because it's revolutionizing treatment of the brain. And we could not have a better individual than Dr. Anita Bonsali, who's a neurosurgeon and spine surgeon at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. Dr. Bonsali, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Bonsali, let's just begin by how many people are we talking about that have some kind of condition in their brain? Um, I think uh, when we're talking about brain tumors, it's useful to distinguish between primary brain tumors, which arise from the brain tissue itself, and metastatic tumors, which represent the spread of cancer from elsewhere in the body. Uh, So primary brain tumors affect approximately 700,000 people in the United States. Uh, About 80,000 adults will be diagnosed with a primary brain tumor every year. Uh, Most primary brain tumors are benign, and many can be managed without surgery. Uh, Brain metastases, which are more common in adults and are all considered malignant, are estimated to occur in about 100 to 170,000 new patients each year. Um, And these numbers can be affected by things like, um, interestingly, greater access to health care and increased response to systemic therapy for cancer so that patients are living longer and thus are being diagnosed with brain tumors at a higher rate potentially than they had been in the past. In regards to uh, epilepsy, the estimates uh, suggest that about 1% of the global population is affected, which translates to about 3.5 million people in the United States and about 300,000 Texans. What are some of the causes of brain tumors? Some of the causes uh, can include certain genetic syndromes that can predispose patients to developing tumors uh, anywhere in the body, including the brain. Um, Most frequently, brain tumors are caused by the spread of cancer from another uh, area of the body, so like lung cancer, breast cancer, etc. Is it difficult to determine what's malignant and what are non-cancerous tumors? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important question uh, in terms of guiding treatment and providing prognosis. So I think you can use a patient's history to uh, try to make an educated guess as to whether something is benign or malignant. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, uh, any metastatic brain tumor is considered malignant. Uh, Malignancy refers to the the ability of a tumor process to spread. A metastatic brain tumor implies that that is a tumor that has adapted the ability to spread outside of its original location to other parts of the body. Um, On the other hand, many... um, Primary brain tumors are benign, and while we can make some educated guesses based on the patient's history, what the tumor looks like on imaging studies, the only way to definitively prove the malignancy or non-malignancy of a tumor is to, to, is to collect a, a sample of that tissue either via biopsy or resection 
and actually look at the cellular structure under a microscope. You know, when you discover a brain disorder, how do you determine what is the appropriate treatment path? So it's definitely a multidisciplinary conversation that includes members of the oncology team, the medical team, often the neurosurgical team, as well as the the patient and the family. Uh, And frequently palliative care is part of the process as well. And that's because in situations where a patient may be dealing with um, metastatic cancer, before you make decisions about invasive procedures, it can be important to identify what the patient would like to accomplish for themselves, what their quality of what quality of life is acceptable for them. Um, it's not always the case that brain surgery leads to an outcome that is. Uh, in concordance with the patient's goals for themselves. So before any any treatment decision is made, whether it's surgery or chemo or radiation, it can be a very involved conversation um, with, you know, multiple team members as well as the patient and family members. You know, Dr. Bonsali, we want to talk about this new procedure that's out. Can you explain that? Yeah, so as you said, the laser interstitial thermal therapy, also known as LIT, also colloquially known as laser ablation, is a minimally invasive procedure that has been used um, actually elsewhere in the body even before it was in use in uh, various brain therapies. The the way that it works in regards to uh, treating uh, nervous system conditions is that a fiber optic wire is passed from basically through the skull to the target area in the brain. And that fiber optic wire generates enough heat, essentially, to permanently damage the target tissue, which can either represent a brain tumor uh, or it can also represent a a region of the brain that may be causing seizures. Um, By heating up the tissue in a a controlled fashion and using MRI guidance to monitor the the lesion that's being created by the laser, uh, we can very precisely destroy tumor tissue or epileptic tissue in a, in a way that saves patients from the morbidity of a, of a more conventional surgery, such as a large incision, having to remove a big um, uh, bone flap, um, which can, both of which can increase the risk of infection and can extend hospital and recovery times. You know, recently uh, we saw where a college cheerleader Uh, had a neurological problem, and her physicians opted to use the LIT procedure on her, but it had nothing to do with a brain tumor. Are you familiar with that case? Uh, Yeah, I was able to to read up a little bit on that case. Very interesting. Uh, So if I understand correctly, that, uh, that young woman had a brain lesion called a cavernoma. It's also, it can also be called a cavernous hemangioma. It has a couple different names. Um, the bottom line is that it's a kind of tangle of blood vessels that can develop in the brain, and it can cause two problems. One, it can cause bleeding or hemorrhage in the brain, um, which can cause neurological deficit like uh, you know weakness, numbness, speech problems, etc., but it can also cause seizures because the lesion itself causes irritation to the brain tissue around it. Um, and when the brain gets irritated, it can lead to seizures. Uh, so by electing to do this lit procedure to you know, thermally heat or ablate the cavernoma, it sounds like her medical team was able to uh, destroy the abnormal tissue 
and cause the irritation that it was generating in the brain to stop, which I, I believe she's now five years seizure-free, uh, which is very impressive. And um, the news report said that the patient was very happy with her results and the fact that it was able to be accomplished with a minimally invasive procedure that had her going home the next day. You're listening to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're talking with Dr. Anita Bonsali. She's a neurosurgeon, and this is Neurosurgery Month in August. She works at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. In the next segment, we're going to keep this conversation going about this new LIT procedure that is making a big difference, especially with people with brain tumors and even epilepsy. And this whole interview is on our podcast and our YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're going to jump right back into our interview with Dr. Anita Bonsali from Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital, talking about a procedure that can help people with epilepsy or otherwise needing brain procedures. Doctors can now go where they've never been able to go before. We hear about non-operable brain tumors. Is LIT a possibility in treatment of, of those situations? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say that the term non-operable brain tumor is it's a term that I think is, is used frequently and that you know, certainly communicates the idea of uh, inaccessibility or a lot of or, tr- or the idea of trying to access this tumor is going to lead to a lot of you know, neurological deficit, which is obviously what we're always trying to avoid. I think there are certain locations in the brain, whether you're trying to use conventional surgery or even a minimally invasive approach like LIT, where the damage to surrounding brain is too great no matter what technique you use. But on the other, on the other hand, LIT allows you to access parts of the brain that may be very difficult to get to with conventional surgery because of the amount of injury to normal brain that conventional surgery can sometimes cause. So I think LIT can potentially, you know, open up invasive procedures to certain brain tumor patients who might not be good candidates for conventional therapy uh, or for whom the location of their tumor can be made potentially safer using the LIT therapy as opposed to open surgery. What are the risks associated with LIT surgery? The risks of LIT surgery include some of the same risks of conventional surgery, but at a much lower rate. So, for example, LIT can cause infection because you still have to make a small incision in the skin and drill a small hole in the bone in order to pass the fiber optic wire to its target. It can cause bleeding or hemorrhage in the brain because you still have to pass the wire through brain tissue to get to the target. One of the, especially in the realm of epilepsy surgery, LIT has a higher risk of recurrence or only partial treatment of the epilepsy compared to certain open procedures. And that is predicated on the exact type of epilepsy, the location in the brain that you're targeting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, In regards to brain tumors, a similar risk of, um, you know, partial treatment or recurrence of the tumor um, exists and, and that can that's both with lit as well as conventional therapy. You know, Dr. Bonsali, it's obvious from our previous segment that you have a very wonderful bedside manner. How do you deal with patients when you have to talk about something as serious as brain surgery? 
I think the thing that I try to keep in mind before any kind of conversation like that is I, I am a big believer in shared decision-making. I think the situation where there's one correct answer for every single patient is, is, quite, is quite rare. Uh, I think that being honest and straightforward and certainly using language that is easy to understand and to avoid confusion is part of it. And I also think, again, really asking in a non-judgmental way to the patient or the family, what are the goals here? What do we want to accomplish? And what are we trying to avoid? And by doing that, I think it is possible to have difficult discussions about risky or invasive procedures where everyone feels like their concerns are heard and that the risk-benefit analysis of any given situation is kind of done out in the open so that the patient and families feel like they are nothing is being um, obfuscated or hidden from them. And I think that increases trust, and I think that overall leads to better outcomes. Dr. Bonsali, I'm curious on this. This is Thomas. Can you feel this? Yeah, that's a fun question to ask because, yes, there are definitely neurons in the brain. Certainly, the, the brain tissue is primarily neurons. But I think what you're asking is, is there a group of nerves that permit sensation? Can the brain feel anything in the, in the same way that you might feel a touch on your skin? And the answer to that is no, the brain does not have any sort of direct sensory neurons or somatosensory neurons is the technical term. However, the lining of the brain, which is the dura, um, it's kind of a thin sort of leathery membrane that protects the brain tissue and lies directly underneath the skull. That does have sensory neurons that are associated with it. So oftentimes when people have a headache after, a, uh, you know, an intracranial or brain procedure, it's often because the dura is irritated and is transmitting pain signals to the brain, coincidentally. But there's no anesthesia for this, right? So lit is performed with, under general anesthesia. And, and that may, you know, honestly, as an aside, that may be because the logistics of the lit procedure involve general anesthesia, Um, the fiber optic wire is placed under stereotactic guidance in the operating room. So meaning um, whatever system of neuronavigation that that the surgeon wishes to use, it's placed very precisely in the operating room. The patient's then transported from the operating room to the MRI suite where the rest of the procedure is actually performed. The thermal ablation with lit is done in the MRI suite um, because the technology that's been developed uses MR magnetic resonance thermography such that there is software now that can detect changes in temperature in the brain that allow for careful monitoring during the procedure so that we know what area of the brain is being heated up, ensuring that we are not um, exceeding certain temperatures and, and making the procedure very safe. Okay, you just really beautifully led to my next question. Okay, good. (laughs) This is not about the procedure. What I'd like to know is how does someone go from a high school senior to operating on somebody's brain? <laughs> I, I will say from my own experience that as a high school, um, high school student, high school senior, I did not imagine that I would end up as a neurosurgeon operating on brains and spines. It all felt a little bit... Um, out of reach and maybe even a little arrogant to think that I could do that. Um, but certainly having a strong support system around me. So, you know, parents who supported my education, 
teachers, professors, instructors who got me excited about subjects that I had not necessarily thought I would be interested in. You know, having friends and a, and a husband who kind of supported me through through residency, which was not not an easy time. Uh, it's a seven year long process. But yeah, I think what what motivated me at least to get on this track was the idea of being able to apply science in a very immediate way. And a, and a large portion of, of what keeps me interested in neurosurgery besides the technology is having those conversations with patients and, and helping them understand what is reasonable to expect from surgery and what isn't and what makes sense in their own vision of their lives and, and what doesn't, and which allows me to kind of individualize the care um, that I provide. And I think, I think people appreciate that. So what would you say to someone, particularly to women, to follow your track who are thinking about this level of a medical career? I think pursuing medicine in general will require sacrifice, sacrifice of time, arguably sacrifice of your, you know, your, your prime years. They will be spent um, in education and training and learning how to be a doctor. You might watch your, your friends and your cohorts pick up jobs, start making money, living, living adult lives while you're still living as this quasi-student with a weird schedule and getting sleep wherever you can. Um, I think that's true for, for certainly for both men and women. And I also would, would emphasize that medicine in general and neurosurgery in particular are not fields that you should go into to please someone else. Um, because at the end of the day, after the, the, the long hours and the, the stressful decision-making and all of that, if you can't find the purpose within yourself, no one else is going to provide it for you. But I also think that more people can do this than think they can. So don't sell yourself short. Yeah, there you go. Keep your eye on the ball. Steve? You know, you've done a great job of explaining about brain tumors, about epilepsy, and about some of the treatment, including surgical procedures. Do you have messages for our listeners around things maybe they should do to help prevent brain tumors. Yeah, that's that is that is a tough one as you say there are there are many kinds of cancer or tumors that we can't do anything about and that may be because those kinds of tumors are are um, likelier because of genetic syndromes. We don't really have a way to to reverse that unfortunately. The best that that people are able to do would be to um you know, in general, live as healthy a lifestyle you can. That includes things like, most particularly, not smoking. Um, smoking increases your risk of not just lung cancer, but all sorts of medical problems, other kinds of cancer. It's a, it's a pretty toxic kind of process. So I think that is maybe the one clearly identifiable risk factor that if you can avoid it altogether or at least minimize your intake, I think that can go a long way to limiting your risk of having to deal with a brain tumor. Prevention has always been the best medicine. Thank you, Dr. Anita Bonsali. Great conversation. Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. If you missed some of this, it's on our podcast and our YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare. Now, when we come back, a new program. Parkland is spearheading, but a number of facilities around the Metroplex are participating. Options and alternatives when you call 911. Next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. 
with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. You know, we want to talk a little bit today about Biotel Social Work and how it interacts with EMS training, fire training. And we have got two great experts we're going to be talking to today. We've got Katie Afflebach, who is the Biotel Social Work Manager at Parkland Health. And we also have the Fire Deputy Chief, Brian Staples, that does fire training with the Mesquite Fire Department. Katie, we're going to start with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We mentioned Parkland. What is the role of Parkland's Biotel Social Work EMS program so our listeners kind of understand what we're really beginning this discussion about? So the um, Biotel Social Work program through Parkland was formed about six years ago to provide medical case management and resource connection to our Biotel EMS agencies. These are agencies are, are located throughout Dallas County, and the program was really created from a request by our area agency EMS chiefs. The goal was to create a pathway for frontline paramedics to make referrals to a social worker who could assist with access to healthcare issues, case management, and healthcare navigation issues. What would you say if you gave a quick executive summary of the primary services you provide? The primary things that we address through the Biotel Social Work Program is addressing patients who are not able to access health care in the most efficient and appropriate way and are relying on the 911 service to meet their health care needs. So this means connecting patients to primary care doctors, helping them feel, fill their medications, assisting with transportations to follow-up appointments, or maybe even facilitating transition into a more supportive living environment, meaning an assisted living, a nursing home, are mobilizing more in-home support like home health care or hospice services. You know, sometimes, Katie, we have our own vocabulary in health care. So to help our listeners a little bit, can you explain what Biotel is? Biotel is actually medical direction for a number of agencies, EMS agencies here in Dallas County, including Mesquite Fire, who you will hear from Chief Staples. Um, and they provide the medical oversight and support for our paramedics on the back of the ambulance. And those paramedics are going into patients' homes and identifying some needs that aren't necessarily medical in nature. So perhaps the patient does not need to actually go to the hospital, but needs someone to help them figure out how they can get to a follow-up appointment or fill prescriptions. And that is why our paramedics in our cities requested that we incorporate a social work component into Biotel. Can you dig a little deeper into that definition of emergency management services social work? To me, EMS social work is basically just what traditionally would be called in a clinic or hospital setting medical social work, which would be helping um, individuals navigate the healthcare system. Like you mentioned, we have our own vocabulary, and sometimes patients need a translator to understand how to access the services they need. So my job is just to come in 
sit down with them, do an assessment of the things that are going well, the things that are maybe driving their 911 use or leading to um, an overall decline in their health, and then figure out what's available to address those needs and hopefully avoid them needing the ambulance to transport them to the hospital. So we try to take all of the things that you might receive from a social worker in a clinic setting or in a hospital setting and bring them directly into your home so that um, we can avoid some transports and make sure we're giving warm handoff from one portion of the healthcare system to the other. You know, that is a wide range of areas that you serve. So let me drill down a little bit more mental health, behavioral health, sometimes uh, medication misuse. Do you cover all of those areas many times to help from a social work point of view? Yeah, so the goal of our EMS social work program is primarily the management of physical health. BioTel Social Work has expanded to include other partnerships that target mental health. And these have been at the request of our city partners and in collaboration with a lot of our police departments throughout the county. So the great thing is, is we kind of have two um, programs operating side by side. One that's going to work to address the health care components as far as physical health, and then one that's going to focus on mental health because a lot of times those overlap. And so if we have a social worker with experience on the medical side, and then we have a social worker with experience on the mental health side, then we can provide wraparound services to the citizens in Dallas County to make sure that they're as successful as possible and have the best quality of life. You're listening to The Human Side of Healthcare, and we're talking with Katie Offlerbach, who is the social work manager at Parkland Health of this Parkland Biotel social work program. Katie, when was this program created? So the Biotel social work program was created um, about six years ago when one of our EMS chiefs actually came to our physicians and nursing leadership within Biotel and said they felt like their paramedics were getting great support on clinical questions. What do you do in a CPR? What kind of um, transport policies and things do they they need to, to work on? But specifically when they had a patient that didn't need to go to the hospital, that didn't need medical care, but did need some kind of assistance, they weren't sure where to turn. And that's probably the thing I love the most about this program is that it really came directly from our paramedics and from our city partners. They wanted a way to provide direct access to resources to their citizens to make sure they were living healthy, um, high-quality lives. You know, that is excellent. Uh, You were a good listener. You heard what they said. So the question I'd have to ask now is, How does the referral process work? So I am a big believer in letting every single one of our EMS agencies and cities tell me what's the best way to manage referrals. But primarily the process goes, a paramedic goes out to a patient's home on a 911 call and sees that this individual does not need to go to the hospital, but they might need um, 
a more supportive living environment or home health care, or maybe they just don't have a primary care doctor, so they are calling um, EMS to provide breathing treatments or something like that. They will send an email to their um, EMS supervisor, whether that's a captain or a chief within the department, and I will work with them to schedule a home visit for the patient. We go out together, a representative from the fire department and myself, because this is a program that the fire department funds to ensure that they can get citizens the best um, level of care possible. And so we really want to reinforce to the citizens in Dallas County, this program was created for you. It's supported by your city because they're invested in your well-being. And it really helps our firefighter paramedics stay connected to the community in a different way outside of an emergency response. So I know this is based out of Parkland, but do you interact with other hospitals within the community, especially from a social work point of view? Yes, absolutely. Probably my favorite part of my job outside of doing assessments with citizens in the community is working with other healthcare providers and finding a way that we can wrap around these uh, patients in the community setting. So I'm always looking to network and expand um, my Rolodex of resources and be a resource to other hospitals and other community partners who may be are aware that their patient is utilizing the 911 system, but don't have the flexibility of home visits like we're able to do um, through the Biotel EMS program. You know, Katie, you mentioned it's part of the Biotel system. What communities does that cover? So currently, um, we provide EMS social work to all of our Biotel agencies. And that is about 14 different uh, fire department EMS agencies throughout Dallas County. But we're always open to partnering with any EMS agency um, that is interested in contracting for social work services. So this is not restricted to only Dallas County. Our goal is to provide comprehensive services to any EMS agency and their clients. Katie, this is Thomas. What's the distinction here between 911 as an emergent vehicle versus a primary care or behavioral health vehicle? Yeah, I think um, when people are in crisis, they're just looking for a solution. And from a young age, 911 is kind of ingrained to us as if you need help, this is who you call. And So that is what's made this so successful because we can build off of the fact that it is 911 you call for help and the paramedics can now get you to the right kind of help. So I always tell my paramedics, as soon as you see one of your citizens who could benefit from some resource connection or healthcare navigation services, just send them my way, even if they've only used the 911 system one or two times. We'd like to be proactive as often as possible. We've been listening to Katie Offlerbach, who is the social work manager at Parkland Health, running this Parkland Biotel social work program, but it's a cooperative venture. One of the people she partners with frequently is Brian Staples of the Mesquite Fire Department. We're going to hear from him next, and you can catch the entire interview on our podcast or our YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare. We'll be right back. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're going to continue our discussion about Biotel, EMS, and this cooperative effort, especially dealing with social work. We're now going to talk with Brian Staples from the Mesquite Fire Department. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You know, Brian, Katie did an excellent job explaining this program in the last segment. But can you explain how emergency management services now have an additional option on dealing with the disparities in health care? When we respond to 911 call, you know, we assess them for any kind of medical needs they might have. And we really only have two options, and that is to take somebody to an emergency room or just leave them there at their house for them to call 911 later again if they need us. And this really gives us a third option to, to utilize to actually get them the help they need. People tend to get stuck in a cycle of going to an emergency room where they're just, their emergent needs are handled and then they're discharged to go back home only for those needs to come up again. And through the social work program, we're able to find them some long-term solutions to actually actually improve their health and not just be stuck in that cycle of emergency room to 911. You know, that's excellent. So it does give you that third option. So Brian, let's say you go to the home that you've received the 911 call and you're assessing the patient. Can you give some examples so our listeners can better understand some of this third option opportunities you have? Well, a lot of times they they need access to primary care or they need access to rehabilitation or or 24-7 nursing home care, but they just don't know how to get it. And taking them to the hospital is not going to get that in motion, but if we get social work involved, we can help them find those resources they need to be placed in the appropriate facility. You know, I touched earlier on a question that I asked Katie about behavioral health, but I would love your thoughts and perspective on this. The EMS social work that you do and the work that you do through the Biotel program at Parkland is excellent. How would you differentiate that than the trend now where I know police, paramedics, and other EMS professionals are partnering with mental health clinicians to deal with our mental health issues? Can you expand on that? Yes, uh, and we do have one of those agencies here in Mesquite, it's the Southeast Alliance Community Care Team, and they are more of a behavioral health component. What they do is respond to active 911 calls where there's an immediate need, and for us it's more of what can we, it's more of a referral process to how can we handle these patients before they need 911. We're trying to intercept, you know, frequent callers or people with extra needs and get something in place so they don't have to keep calling 911, whereas the behavioral health, they respond to active 911 calls. You know, the other question that I was thinking is, as you look to the future and you look at the interaction between social work and emergency management services, what do you see on the horizon? Or even more, what would you like to see? Um, Moving forward, I I can see this this growing and continuing to work together. Our department and the citizens have seen a benefit and um, these existing relationships where now we're building out other programs like this behavioral health response team to address things. And it's really 
there's just a lack of access to mental health resources in our area. So this really helps bridge that gap and get people the help they need. And I just can see that continuing to grow. You know, with the excellent work you do and when you go into homes uh, to serve the needs of people, let's use an example, Brian. You get a call, you go in, you assess the patient, you realize they really need, as you said, some primary care or rehab care. How do you deal with the patient at that point, and what information do you give them? At that point, it's a matter first, do they need immediate care? Do we need to get them to an emergency room to stabilize them or provide them care right now? If it is simply a case of they just need some long-term care, then what we will do is make a referral through Biotel for the social worker uh, right there on the scene so that we can gather important information, some demographic information on that person to be able to contact them. When they return back to the station, they, they email their supervisor. In this case, it's the captain over EMS who then works with a social worker to schedule a home visit and follow up that way. We're talking with Brian Staples of the Mesquite Fire Department here on the human side of healthcare. So, Brian, I'm curious, when you get a 911 call, do you have to go, or is this something that can be triaged and explored on the phone and not have to leave the fire station? We respond to all 911 calls, and uh, that's, a, that's a city policy. We will, we will always do that. We respond in case a citizens need something. You know, we do not always get accurate information, you know, from a caller. It could be a third-party caller or something like that. So we, we send units to the scene to be sure we can assess the situation and see if there's any immediate needs we, that we can handle. So you go, and then you come back and you say, hey, we might have a referral here. Is that basically then what happens? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, we go and we see if there's any immediate needs, and if not, then we make the referral right there. And I would say, like, of 10 calls that you go out on, are 10 of them basically of this nature, this type of call, something that you, in essence, can't do anything about? You just set up this, I don't know, what do you do when you go out on these calls that kind of, you know, I'm going to say, I'm not going to put this on the radio. I'll re-ask this question. They don't need you, right? What do you do with that? Well, it's, it's, you know, if somebody wants transport to the hospital, we will always do that. That's also a city policy. If somebody wants to go to the emergency room and visit, um, we will take them. And if not, we will make the, like say, we'll make the referral right there for social work through the Biotel system and through their supervisor. They contact the supervisor and say, we want social work involved and here's the issues. And then they will work and schedule an appo- a follow-up appointment with the social worker. Now, I would imagine you've got a pretty good pulse with the street. Is that fair enough? That's right. <laughs> with what's going on out there. So we have had, uh, you know, hate to say this, but a rash of shootings in our country lately. Has that put people on more pins and needles lately? Of, of course, uh, anything like that does. And we just try to continue to train and prepare. And, and, you know, we hope it never happens, but we want to be prepared in case it does happen in our community and be able to respond when it does. You know, the randomness of these things how do you process that as as a first responder that it could happen literally now anywhere? And that's correct. And that's, it's really we try to address that through training and through preparation. And we work closely with our police department and for our school district in this case. And to be sure that we're all on the same page and we know what we're going to do and we're prepared to do it when it happens. So and we just hope that day never comes, but we want to be prepared in case it does. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
How has this program also shifted over the last two years that we've been through? The, the social work program, it's shifted really just to getting the information out there. It's changed from, I think that someone might need some help, to our people actively asking more questions, more in-depth questions about primary care and support systems that they have in the home and things like that instead of just, you know, when it started, it was like, I think this person might need some help, and now our medics on the street are actually investigating those issues a little more and getting more in-depth with their questioning to find out, does this person have the resources they need or do they need help? It's, it's, really, it's really grown, and it's really been great to see the shift in our people on, on getting more in-depth on that questioning and, and trying to take care of our patients. So in a way, you know, we've kind of had to make lemonade from lemons here over the last couple of years. This is one of the lemonade side areas, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as people get used to this third option, before it was just simply we can take you to the hospital or not. And that was really our only options, and we were a little bit a little stuck there. So this has been a great third option to be able to get somebody the care they need and, and help them out of that just that 911 to ER cycle. Well, I'll tell you what, whatever happens and wherever it happens, you never hear a bad thing about a firefighter. Thank you for what you do. <laughs> you guys yeah, are the unsung sir. heroes. Thanks. I appreciate that. What else can you say? Brian Staples, Mesquite Fire Department, along with Katie Offlerbach from Parkland Health, making alternatives available for people who need it in North Texas. Steve? Thanks, Thomas. Excellent guest. And you know what? Speaking of shows, it's going to be a real treat next week. We're going to be talking about the dogs that are over at Cook Children's that help the patients, the families, and the staff. They're part of the overall treatment process. And we hope all of our listeners will join us next week for that Labor Day show. And we hope you have a very safe Labor Day weekend.